Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Sylvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. The word of the Lord. Well, today we're going to conclude our series on First Peter. No cheers, no booze. I'm not sure how you're feeling about this series, but we'll be done with it. Um, the main purpose of the book, and it's nice when the author of a, an epistle or a letter or a book of the Bible tells us exactly why they're writing it. And so we see it in verse 12. Peter says, I wrote this to exhort you to declare that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. That's why he wrote it. He wrote it so we know what to believe, what the true grace of God is, what the right content of our faith is, what God has done for us, and so that we would then apply it and stand firm in it. Not wavering, not doubting, but we would actually take it and live based on this truth. And so the letter now ends with the assurance that all those who do that, who in spite of suffering, in spite of persecution, are holding on to the gospel, to the true grace of God, they will be restored and vindicated in glory. You may be suffering now, but in glory you will be vindicated and restored. So what do we do while we wait for that final restoration, final vindication when Jesus returns? Well, Peter gives us several directions here, and he, in fact, returns and almost recaps some of the themes that we've been looking at. He tells us that we are to humble ourselves before God. It's a big theme, submission, humility. We've talked a lot about that. It tells us to resist the devil, specifically in the context of persecution, as the world pushes on you, as the devil behind kind of stirring up the world against you, we are to resist him. We are to love other Christians and trust our community. And then we are to look at Christ. So this is our outline for this morning. Number one, let's look at the hand of God and our humility before him. Number two, let's look at the roar of the devil and our resistance to his assaults. 
And then number three, the kiss of love and the importance of community. And finally, the peace of Christ. Verse 6, Peter says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Now, we've learned that Peter often uses Old Testament imagery and quotes and allusions, and this is one of them. If you are quiet just for a second, you will hear the echoes of Exodus. There are echoes of the Exodus story in this passage. Peter talks about the mighty hand of God. That's straight from Exodus. For example, Exodus 32 verse 11 tells us that God's people were brought out of the land of Egypt, out of slavery there with great power and with a mighty hand. And then in Deuteronomy 5 verse 15, we are told, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. The mighty hand of God symbolizes God's power, his, his ability to redeem and deliver and take us out of bad situations and put us in better situations and, and rescue us. So this mighty hand of God took God's people out of their suffering in Egypt and placed them into the land of promise. His power proved greater than the power of Pharaoh. The mighty hand of God redeemed Israel from the hand of Pharaoh king of Egypt, according to Deuteronomy 7, verse 8. So the idea here is that in the same way, just as God rescued his people from Egypt, his mighty hand will deliver his people now from the suffering and persecution they experience in the world. And verse 10, after they have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. The promise is that this suffering is temporary. It only lasts a little while. And when it's over, at the proper time, all God's people will be exalted and glorified. Our God is a God of all grace, meaning that He has eternally committed Himself to our good. He's also a God with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, meaning that he is committed to use his superior power to deliver us, to rescue us. And so our response to that is that we humble ourselves under his powerful and gracious hand. But how do we do that? Well, at least in two ways. First, we humble ourselves by trusting the Lord with our future. We trust the Lord with our future. We live in hope of future glory. We defer to God for our final vindication and restoration. We let Him do that in the future. Now look at verse 10 again. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory of, in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. God Himself will set things right. Peter is stringing these four words together, restore, confirm, strengthen, establish. He does it for rhetorical effect. He wants us to feel that when God shows up at the end of history, when he comes and he does what he needs to do, everything will be set right. Everything broken will be fixed. Everything damaged will be repaired. Everything lost will be reclaimed. Everything lacking will be restored, 
Everything disordered will be put in order. Everything shaky will be steadied. Everything loose will be secured. Everything sick will be healed. That's the point. And so we trust Him. We look forward to that vindication. We look forward to that healing. We look forward to that renewal and restoration. Just like the Israelites who had to wait on God to deliver them. We are called to wait on God to deliver us when Jesus returns. And it takes humility to do that. It takes humility to wait on someone else to solve your problems. Our temptation is to vindicate ourselves, to fight for our own rights, our own reputation, to escape, to avoid suffering, to make our life easier by compromise, to avoid any kind of humiliation or disrespect. But Peter says, humble yourselves. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time, not this minute, but at the proper time, He may exalt you. He may exalt you, not us exalting ourselves. He will do that. And so we humble ourselves and we trust Him to do that in the future. We humbly wait for the proper time. Not determined by us, but by Him. We are to live in hope of our future exaltation. We may be put down now. We may be persecuted now. We may be hurting now. We may be suffering now. But we live in hope that God will come and He will exalt us. He will vindicate us. He will restore us. One commentator said, Resources for living life today are found in the knowledge of the ultimate end. Resources for living life today are found in the knowledge of the ultimate end. If you know that your ultimate end is God's eternal glory in Christ, that's, that's what waits for you. That's what God promised to you. God's eternal glory in Christ. If you know that, if you believe that, if you trust that it will happen, if you defer to God to do that, if you are expecting that and anticipating that, and you know this is coming to you, then you can handle today's suffering and today's persecution and today's humiliation. And as we live in hope of future glory, along with Peter, we, we say, we sing, to Him be the dominion forever and ever. To Him be glory forever and ever. To Him be power and strength and, and wealth. And we defer to Him. We say, God will come. God will set things right. And I will wait, humbly submitting to His mighty hand. Until then, until He does that, I will humble myself and suffer for a little while. Number two, we wait for that final vindication by humbling ourselves, and we do so by trusting the Lord with our present. Yes, we look forward to the future, but we also are looking at our present struggles. And so we trust the Lord to help us now in our present problems. Now look at verse 7. Casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. You need to feel His mighty hand on your shoulder now. Go to Him and give your worries to Him. 
Give your concerns to Him. Give your difficulties to Him. Give your struggles and your hurts and your problems to Him. Why? Because He cares for you. Because He loves you. Because the Lord is with you. He's ready to support you. He holds your hand, according to Psalm 37. Trust Him to be there. Let your soul cling to Him because His right hand upholds you. Psalm 63. The Lord loves His people and all His holy ones are in His hand. So you go to Him and you trust Him and you give to Him your worries knowing that you are in His hand, according to Deuteronomy 33. Everybody worries Everybody is anxious about something. Everybody's hurting. The question is, what do you do with it? I heard a story about a man who said, he's meeting his friend, and he said, you know, I have tremendous problems. I'm way over my, my head in debt. My creditors are calling me every day. My wife has left me. My children don't want to talk to me. But you know what? I don't worry about any of it. And his friend says, well, how, how did you arrive to this very serene, content state in spite of all these awful things that are happening to you. And he said, well, I saw this ad for a professional warrior. You can hire somebody who will simply just worry for you. So you don't have to worry, but you just pay him money and and all he does is worries for you. That's all he does. That's a full-time job, 50 hours a week. He just worries for you. And his friend says, well, how much does this cost? He says, $50,000 a year. He said, that, that's a lot of money. He said, where, where are you going to get the money? Aren't you worried about that? He's like, well, I'm not worried about that. I hired him to worry about that, so that's his problem now. There's a circular logic here. that doesn't, It doesn't quite work because somebody has to pay that bill still. But what, is, what does God want us to do with our worries? What do we do? In some ways, it's similar because we do take it to someone else. And we do take it to somebody who can handle our worries. And we give it to him and we leave it with him. We cast all our anxieties on him. There's a, there's a, the, the image is you bring it and you, you dump it and you leave it at his feet. Because he cares for you. He wants you to do that. God wants you to bring your anxieties to him. This verse, I think, is very practical. I practice this verse, and I know many of you do as well. Sometimes when I start my prayer time or I start reading my Bible, I just, lots of thoughts, working through things. I'm worried. I'm stressed about all sorts of things. I'm trying not to forget things. And what I've learned is that instead of trying to combat that and say, focus, 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 (laughs) just trying to pay attention, pay attention, don't think about that. What I've started doing is I just bring that list to Jesus. I just go to him and I say, I'm really worried. I'm really struggling. I'm really stressed. Here I am. And here are all my problems. And I just read the list to him. And I just actually, I just actually verbalize and list it. I say, I'm worried about this. I'm worried about that. I don't know how that's going to go. I don't know what to do with that. And I just list it to him. And then I just say, you take this. You take it. And very often, there's a sense of relief. And there's a sense of God 
taken that from me, taken that burden off of me. I'm not strong enough or big enough or smart enough to deal with any of this. But he is. And he invites us to come to him. I mean, this is, this is an incredible thing about God, that he invites us to do these things. Things that you shouldn't do with other people, right? You shouldn't go to somebody and just dump all your problems on them and say, you deal with them. But God says, you do that with me, he says. And he says, because I care for you. There's an affirmation of care and an invitation to bring your worries and your anxieties to him. I wonder if you practice that. To me, this is, this is experience. This is, this is practical stuff. You can do that. You can do that right now. You can pray and you can say, Lord, take these things. That doesn't mean you're not engaged in those things. It doesn't mean you don't do it. You just do it without worrying. You work through it with him and he helps you. Do that. Practice that. Scripture isn't just about great doctrines that we are to believe. All these doctrines have very specific implications and applications for our lives. And so as we read it, we practice it. This is the true grace of God. God actually cares for you. This is the true grace of God. Now stand firm in it. Practice it. Take your anxieties to him. Cast them on him and expect that he will take them. And out of his care and love for you, he will actually help you. A story about Hudson Taylor, the famous missionary to China, who in the closing weeks and months of his life was really struggling. And he said to a friend, he said, I am so weak, I can't read my Bible. I, I, I can barely pray, he said. I can only lie still in God's arms like a little child and trust. What a great image of being a little kid in God's presence and simply just feeling his hand on your shoulder, his mighty hand on your shoulder, assuring you that you can take your anxieties to him and simply trust him. Christianity is not confusing. It's not complicated. It's just trusting him. It's knowing him. It's giving your sins and your struggles to him. Well, that's the hand of God. Now let's look at the roar of the devil. Look at verses 8 and 9. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith. As we wait for future glory, we must learn how to deal with our enemy. The devil here is portrayed as a, as a roaring lion looking for opportunities to devour Christians. Now, it's interesting that in other parts of Scripture, the devil is portrayed as a snake. You know that. Or, or an, an accuser or somebody, a dragon. Somebody that, that there, there's an imagery of, of subtlety and deception. He's a liar, right? Now, here it's very obvious. The, the portrayal of the devil here is, a, is an obvious, scary predator. Everybody knows what he is. Everybody knows what a roaring lion is about to do. Now, the context of the, of the letter explains why this image is relevant here, because these people, these Christians, are under direct persecution. So they're feeling the pressure of the world. 
and powerful people around them are not accepting them. They are marginalizing them. They are persecuting them. People are losing their possessions and sometimes their lives. So this feels like very much an open, straightforward attack on the church. No subtlety here. No schemes. No deception. There's there's a straight-up assault on the church here. And many Christians today are in exactly that context. Many aren't, but many are. The devil sometimes will tempt you. Sometimes he will trick you. But sometimes he comes right at you like a hungry, roaring lion ready to devour his prey. And this is what Peter is dealing with here. In that kind of circumstance, when you are overwhelmed by his attack, and could come through persecution, certainly. It could come through overwhelming temptation. But whenever you feel like it's just just this just head-on assault from the devil, this is where this is applicable. Now, since the Russian invasion began almost nine months ago in Ukraine, um, we've all become military experts. So ask me any question about weaponry or strategy. I think I know all the answers. And then correct me, please. What I've learned is that there are different strategies for invasions. There is the strategy called shock and awe. Shock and awe. The idea is to use overwhelming power and an impressive display of force immediately, quickly, in order to to destroy the opponent's will to fight and to stun them, to shock them into surrender. This is what Russia tried to do. Overwhelming force. We're just going to send all our planes. We're going to send all our tanks from different directions. And we're going to overwhelm them, roll over them, and, let, and make them give up within days. Now, it's a fine strategy when it works. But if the opponent is able to withstand the initial assault and stand firm, The aggressor finds its forces overextended, its resources depleted, and its morale weakened. This is what happened in Ukraine. The initial few days, it was was just crazy. Nobody knew what was going on. Nobody knew what was going to happen. And yet, because the Ukrainians were able to withstand that initial assault, and they didn't give way, and they didn't surrender, eventually that force, that overwhelming force, kind of ran out. The Ukrainian president was under tremendous pressure to flee and to govern from exile. The military was tempted to run or surrender, and yet they didn't. And they were able to stand firm and withstand the initial assault. Now, some of the stories that have come out from the first days of the invasion are about brave new recruits and volunteers who simply refused to give up their positions. And they surprised the Russian overwhelming force by simply refusing to give up and leave. Some of them were just too naive. and They didn't have enough communication from the other parts of the front to know what's happening. And they were simply just doing their job. Some of them had to convince their officers to give them weapons. Some of them had no idea what they were doing. But they were standing firm, and because of that, they surprised the aggressor, 
and we're able to slow them down, in some cases, stop them altogether. Now, what happens after you withstand that initial assault is now you take initiative. Now things change, and now the aggressor is overextended and tired, and they have no plans beyond the, the third day. And so now you go on the attack. This is a good analogy from the Christian dealing with an overwhelming shock and awe offense of the devil. Peter says, be sober-minded and watchful. Think clearly and don't be overwhelmed by this display of force. Pay attention, be alert, be prepared for his assault. And when persecution comes, or when an overwhelming temptation comes, stay firm in your faith and resist surrendering or retreating. The devil's goal in this strategy is to destroy your faith. He wants you to say, this is too hard. This is too painful. It's, it's not worth it. He wants you to give up and leave the faith altogether. But if you withstand the initial attack, if you're able to hear the lion roar and you don't take a step back and you don't run, you can regroup and persevere. One church father said, there's a world of difference between God and the devil. If you resist God, he will destroy you. But if you resist the devil, you will destroy him. By cultivating watchfulness and sober-mindedness, we prepare to resist the devil when he roars at us. And when we resist him, he runs. Eventually he runs. James 4 tells us, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Drawing near to God, humbly submitting yourself to his mighty hand, is how we resist the devil, how we avoid being overwhelmed by his attacks. We resist the devil by being firm in our faith. So instead of surrendering to temptation, we surrender to God's words. Instead of making excuses, we remember his promises. Instead of indulging our flesh, we walk in step with the Spirit. Instead of letting fear take hold of us, we take hold of God's grace by faith. And if you have that spiritual posture, if you have that attitude, if you have that state of mind, it's tough. But you can get through the initial assault, and then you take initiative, and then he runs. He runs. Are you aware of the devil's strategies? All kinds of strategies. Scripture tells us to know. To prepare. A lot of them are very subtle and based on deception, but some of them are just straightforward. He just comes right at you. Are you ready for that? Are you ready to stand firm? Are you alert? Are you watchful? Do you live a life that you live a life with open eyes and know what's going on and are paying attention? Are you and prepared to stand firm? Are you prepared to resist him? Are you firm in your faith now? Because when it's under attack, it will show, your, show itself to be what it is. If it's not firm, you will know. Develop that firmness now. Now, of course, we're not expected to resist the devil alone. So look at verse 9. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Now, Peter deliberately puts us 
and our suffering and our persecution and our struggles in the context of the larger church, of the global church. Many Christians are persecuted. We pray regularly for specific people, specific churches, specific areas of the world where Christians are being persecuted today. Many are assaulted by the devil and are resisting him firm in their faith. Many have humbled themselves under the mighty hand of God. Christian community, our brotherhood, our connection with each other, primarily here in the local church, people you know, but also throughout the global church, knowing what's going on, knowing people who are suffering well, is an essential component of our own perseverance. God never means for us to go through these things alone, on our own. That's not what Christianity is like. He puts us into a family, into a local family of believers, but He puts us into this huge global nation of Christians, this new race of people, this new community that spans eras and centuries and cultures and languages. We are a part of that. And we are learning from each other how to persevere and how to suffer well. Now, have you noticed that Peter is not only teaching this kind of communal perseverance, he's also modeling it. Verse 12 mentions Silvanus, whom Peter affirms as a faithful brother. He's actually taking this opportunity to affirm him. Say, this is a faithful brother. I regard him as a faithful brother. He's sending him with the letter and so people now know that this is a co-worker, a brother of Peter's. Then he's mentioned in Mark in verse 13. Peter calls him his spiritual son. He's modeling that kind of relationship. I am helping him. I am raising him up in the faith. I am discipling him. I am mentoring him. We are suffering together. And then also in verse 13, Peter passes along the greetings from she who is at Babylon. Now, some have said, maybe that's his wife who's taking vacation in Babylon. No. (laughs) I think it's just a way to say, here's the church in Rome, the modern-day Babylon for Peter, another idolatrous city, another city in which Christians are in exile, and the church at Babylon is sending her greetings. She's also elect. And so Peter goes full circle to the beginning of the letter, saying, we are elect exiles. Just like the church in Rome, the church in Babylon, it's just like Israel who was exiled into Babylon. We are exiled into all these pagan areas. We are there for a reason. We are elect of God. We are accepted by Him, but we are rejected by the world. That is our reality. And a church sends, church like that, sends her greetings to you, a church like that too. So there's communication, there's connection, there's this global communion of Christians Peter reminds us once again that we are all elect exiles. So are you intentionally participating in your spiritual community here? You're here on a Sunday? You're listening online maybe? Are you part of this community, really? Like, I mean people. Like people you know, people that you suffer with, people that know what you're dealing with, people whom, who you can turn to, and say, help me. Help me resist the devil. I'm in a, such a, under such an assault by the enemy. I need your help. Help me. I read this article a few days ago, and, and 
It's the weirdest thing. And you, uh, I'll put the link in the notes and you can see the pictures if you want. But there's this island, and it's a, just a tiny island in New York State somewhere. And when you look at the picture, it's an island that has a house on it and a tree. And there's literally nothing else. It's just a house built on this tiny, tiny island. The name of the island is Just Room Enough Island. Just Room Enough Island. There's a couple or a family uh, from the city who wanted a, a place to get away, kind of a secluded place, so they found this island, built this house. The square footage of the house is, is greater than the, the square footage of the island. So they wanted it as, as sort of a getaway, and of course that became a huge tourist attraction. And everybody's coming to see their house. So they didn't get much peace. Well, that's the Christian life, isn't it? Some of us are trying to isolate. Some of us are trying to, to find a refuge. And then other people keep, keep coming, right? Keep meddling in our business. That's how it's supposed to be. We're not supposed to leave each other alone. We're not supposed to isolate. I'm not looking for a place where I can just be by myself. I need you. We need each other. This is how we persevere together. I knew a friend, a friend of mine, a pastor who's had a long ministry and a hard ministry. He would always say, he said, my dream is I just want to be on an island, my Bible, Jesus and me, no one else. <laughs> That's not how it's supposed to be. That is not a good dream. <laughs> We're supposed to be together. And in glory, we will be together. So get used to it now. If you're uncomfortable with it now, get used to it because you can have a lot more people in your business in glory. And then Peter says this, greet one another, verse 14, greet one another with the kiss of love. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Jillian, I want to tell you a story. I think I may have told it before. In some churches, people do this. They kiss. They take this literally and they say, we're going to do what the Bible says. And so if I'm going to greet you, I'm going to greet you with the kiss of love. The problem is that everybody develops a particular way of kissing. Because it's so secluded and it's so based on a particular community, you kind of know, you need to know how to kiss. So I remember I went, me and a couple of my friends in Ukraine, went to a particular church. Now, if you're a Baptist and you grew up in certain Baptist churches, you know that you go left, for example, when you kiss. <laughs> Other churches, you would go right. Do you do a handshake and a kiss? Is there a hug and a kiss. There's all these different strategies. And so if you're not from the church, you really don't know what you're dealing with. And of course, I wasn't. I was with two of my other friends. And so we went to see the pastor, meet the pastor after the service. And my first Baptist friend went confidently from the handshake and the left side kiss. And that didn't quite work. And then my other friend, he's like, I'm going to do the opposite. So he did the opposite and that didn't quite work. And then here I come. And I just go for a really awkward embrace, and then we just kind of hold each other for a little while, neither of us knowing what to do. So I, I didn't get a kiss of love uh, from, from that pastor. And that's how some churches do it. If you want to kiss and the person you want to kiss is fine with that, do it. But are there other cultural equivalents of that? Sure. A handshake, a hug, right? There's lots of ways you can do it. The point here is that you show affection. You show solidarity, you show community, you show connection, you show relationship to other people in your church. 
One commentator said, here's a good example of where the cultural significance of a particular action must be taken into account. If for whatever reason kissing is inappropriate, in most cases kissing is inappropriate, let's just establish that. Some other culturally acceptable substitute should surely be adopted in its place. This is what stood out to me. He says, the danger is to do nothing, keeping other Christians at arm's length. In the Christian fellowship, there ought to be a greater degree of mutual love and care, especially for single and lonely people, than in society at large. And the church may well need to take the lead in showing people showing love to such people and in confirming and conveying it to them by suitable symbolic actions. Part of our job is to restore affection into the world and for us to show that when you're here, when you're part of our community, we do greet each other with a kiss of love. We do hug and we do shake hands and we do say nice things and affirming things about each other. And we do love each other, not just quietly, spiritually, deep down inside, but also visibly and tangibly. So we need to show affection. So here's your homework. (laughs) Today after the service, find an appropriate way to show affection to somebody. Do that. Find a way to express your love and affection to that person from your church. And don't do the easy thing and just hug your husband or wife, okay? Peter concludes his letter by saying, peace to all of you who are in Christ. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. This is not just a nicety. He's not just ending in an expected way. Of course, we need to mention something about peace, probably something about Jesus. No, this is deliberate. He says, peace to all of you who are in Christ. It's a summary of what he's been teaching. What is the true grace of God if not the peace of being in Christ? How else can you define the true grace of God if you don't bring Jesus into it, if you don't bring peace into it, if you don't put it into a personal context of I am in Christ and what he did benefits me. Something that he did changes me and it gives me peace. Our God is a God of all grace and this grace is channeled to us through his Son. Notice that we are called to eternal glory, God's eternal glory in Christ. It's all concentrated, concentrated in Him, in this person. It's this Christ that saved us by His mighty pierced hand and an outstretched arm on the cross. That's how glory comes to us. That's how grace is channeled to us. That's what true grace of God is. It's Jesus. It's Jesus, this Lion of Judah. The Lion whose roar is greater than the roar of the enemy. It's this lion that is also a lamb who was slaughtered, who was devoured by the enemy, and yet came back from the dead, roaring like a lion. It's this Jesus who told us that his sheep hear his voice, and that he knows them, and that they follow him, that he gives us eternal life, and that we will never perish, and no one will snatch us out of his hand. Jesus says that out of the pierced hand, out of the outstretched arm of our Lord. Nobody can snatch us out. He will reward his faithful. He will vindicate us. Our suffering will end. We will be welcomed into his glory, and we will be there forever with him. When Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead, he will exalt us. He will do it. The proper time 
is the time of his return. And all who know him wait for that. So do you know him? Do you follow him? Do you know and have you experienced the true grace of God in Jesus? His cross, his empty tomb, and the promise of his return.